0: Yeah, great. Tim from Cleveland's here. Everybody claps.
1: <laughs>
0: Haven't done anything yet. So right now, what I'd like to do is take a moment and thank the people who have done something, the people who worked all year to make it possible for all of us to be here today. Let's give them a round of applause.
1: <laughs>
0: I am from Cleveland. They brought me out here to check on that Jim T- thing, see how that's working out for you guys out here. I'm pretty sure uh, what I'm going to say up here today, but I'm not pretty sure what you're going to hear. There's a story I like to tell. It's a story about a state trooper. The state trooper, he's sitting on the side of the road, and he's just doing what state troopers do on the side of the road. They wait for somebody to go by doing wrong. And that day, a boy drove by in a pickup truck. The back of that pickup truck was full of penguins. He knew there was something wrong with that, so he pulled him over. He said, son, where are you going with all those penguins in the back of that pickup truck? So, well, we're not going anywhere, officer. We're just going for a ride. He said, you can't take penguins for a ride. You take those penguins to the zoo. He said, yes, sir. Next day, that trooper, he's in the same spot. Here comes that pickup truck. Still full of penguins. But on that day, all those penguins were wearing sunglasses. So he pulled that boy over again. He said, boy, I thought I told you to take those penguins to the zoo. He said, yes, sir, I did. And today we're going to the beach.
1: <laughs>
0: My name's Tim Towsley. I'm an alcoholic. I did not want to be an alcoholic. My daddy was an alcoholic. My daddy was a member of his fellowship. He got sober in 1946. He passed away in 1980. He had 10 years of continuous sobriety put together at that time in his life. And what that did for me at an early age, it gave me an opportunity to see what an alcoholic was all about. To see what alcoholism was all about. And also to see what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. I came from a family where I had six stepfathers. I had 13 stepmothers. I went to over 20 schools, and I never got out of the 8th grade. I've been married three times and divorced twice. I left home when I was 14 years old. I've had an opportunity in my life to spend time in boys' homes, detention homes, city jails, county jails, workhouses, psych wards, treatment centers, and penitentiaries. I spent 12 years of my life either on parole probation, or locked behind some kind of door somewhere. And you know now, one of those things I just mentioned are the reason I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those were merely the situations that my disease of alcoholism created in my life. But on June 23rd, 1982, I woke up at the bottom. It's the bottom they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's when you know a loneliness such as few men know. That's when you're at that jumping-off place. You're wishing for the end. You can no longer imagine life with or life without alcohol. And that's the bottom. That's not a high bottom, but that's not a low bottom either. That's my bottom. And my bottom's the only bottom I have to concern myself with in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever want to be in a position in my sobriety to be able to sit in a room, listen to a speaker speak, and start thinking things like, you know, maybe I wasn't that bad, huh? Or maybe I was worse. Because as soon as I can sit out there and I can make myself believe I'm different in any way from anybody else that's sitting in one of these chairs, as soon as I can make myself believe I'm unique in any way from anybody else that's sitting in a room with Alcoholics Anonymous, Then I have reservations. And there was an old timer in Berea, Ohio, where I got sober. He used to tell me this all the time. He said, Tim, you know, if you've got reservations, you must be going somewhere, son. And I don't want to go anywhere today. I like it here. I had my first drink at 13. I got sick. I blacked out. I passed out. I woke up in the backyard of a lady's house in Rocky River, Ohio. I had my last drink at 30. I got drunk, I got sick, I passed out, I blacked out, and I woke up at home in bed. (laughs) 17 years, of abuse and abuse, and the only real difference was where I woke up the next morning. Most of the days were pretty much the same, but I know something for sure today. I know God wants me in Alcoholics Anonymous. That lady came out of her back door. She found me in her backyard. She took me in her house. She cleaned me up. She laid me down. She found out who I was. She called my mama, let my mama know I was Okay. Seventeen years later, I got sober. I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober about two weeks, and I went to a meeting. I walked into that meeting, and that lady was speaking that night. My very first drunk, I found myself in the arms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that lady did for me that night all she knew how to do. She was sober three months that night. And the people at her home group told her, help a drunk. And that's what she did that night. And they didn't tell her, only help the male drunks or the female drunks, the white drunks or the black drunks, the old drunks or the young drunks. They told her to help a drunk, period. And that's what she did that night. And you know, I still see that woman at meetings today. She's coming up on 40 years sober. She's over 80 years old. And you know what she's doing She's helping drunks. Two things I ran from most of my life. I'm not crazy about them today. I have a lot of them, still don't like them, but I don't run from them. Today I deal with them. And those two things are responsibility and authority. I don't like being responsible. There's a lot of responsibility involved with being responsible. (laughs) And I certainly don't like people telling me I'm supposed to be responsible. And it seemed like in my life at 13 and 14 years old, everybody had an idea. How long Tim's hair should be. How tight Tim's jeans should be. How high the heels on his boots should be. Everybody had an idea about Tim's life and no one asked me if I cared. I'm 14 years old, I'm at a family gathering, and I'm just listening to people talk. And I overheard somebody say this, that my daddy was in New Orleans And he was sober. And with that information, I left home the next day. Because I knew my problem wasn't what I was doing or who I was doing it with. My problem was I didn't have my real father there. And if I could find my real father, my life would be okay. I got to New Orleans. I contacted Alcoholics Anonymous. They contacted my daddy and they put us together. Now, all of a sudden, I had a father and he had a son. And we tried to be those two things, but neither one of us had ever been either of those two things before. We did the best we could, we just didn't know what we was doing. And it worked okay for a few months. And then after about three months, I learned something. My daddy started drinking again. And I can remember rolling into my mother's house, 13, 14 years old, drunk. Passing out on the living room floor and having her scream at me the next morning. Tim, don't drink. Please don't drink. You'll get what your father has. But I never knew what she was trying to keep me from getting. I never saw my daddy drunk until I was 14 in New Orleans. I watched him drink. I watched him get drunk. I watched him go into the DTs, and I watched the people from Alcoholics Anonymous come into our little apartment, take him away, and put him in Bridge House in New Orleans. And I made a decision on that day that I'm not going to end up like my daddy ended up. I'm not going to be an alcoholic. And I didn't have another drink for the next four years. But there I was all of a sudden, 14 years old. I got no responsibility. I got no authority. I'm in a city in New Orleans, and it's 1966. And I guess I was a hippie. At least that's what folks called me. Unless I was kind of like in northern Alabama or west Texas, there was always another word they had in front of hippie. I
1: didn't
0: do much anything for the next four years but hitchhike all over this country. I had four good years. If I woke up in Los Angeles, didn't like it there, I'd hitchhike San Francisco. If I didn't like San Francisco, I'd go to Denver. If Denver didn't please me, I'd go to Miami. I just hitchhiked all over this country and I had four good years. My expectations were met. If I had a pack of cigarettes, if I had a sleeping bag, and I had something to eat on that day, it was a good day. That's all I needed out of life. And if I had those three things, it was a good day. My expectations were met. Now, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me this, that my expectations are inversely proportional to my serenity level. And I don't know about anybody else, but I can tell you this about me. If I get exactly what I think I'm supposed to have exactly I mean exactly when I think I'm supposed to have it, I'm a pretty happy guy. But as soon as I don't, my expectations aren't met and my serenity level starts going down. I'm eighteen years old, I'm outside Salt Lake City. Guy dropped us off up in the mountains. I don't know how far we are from Salt Lake City, but there's nothing at this off-ramp where he drops us off. There's no stores, there's no houses, there's no gas stations, there's no nothing. This is a road that goes up into the Rocky Mountains somewhere. And this is where he dropped us off. We went to sleep that night. Woke up the next morning about five in the morning just froze to death. You see, I'm not happy anymore. All of a sudden, I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. I want some of the stuff I'm seeing on the other sides of the freeways. I'm seeing people in their backyard. They're mowing the grass. They're painting the garage. They're doing something at their house. I want some of that stuff from the billboards. The billboards that tell me if I drive this kind of car, I'm okay. If I wear these kind of clothes, I'm okay. If I live in that kind of neighborhood, I'm okay. I knew if I could get somewhere and get that stuff, you'd see me with the stuff. You'd know if I had the stuff that meant I was okay. You'd tell me I was okay because I couldn't. We walked down to the bottom of that on-ramp, in the middle of Utah, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. Five o'clock in the morning, sitting on the end of that on-ramp is a six-pack of Olympia beer. I know God wants me here. (laughs) I drank three beers. He drank three beers. I looked at him. I said... You know, if I ever get back to Cleveland alive, I'm settling down. I'm going to marry the first girl I see. I got back to Cleveland alive. I stopped at my parents' home. My stepfather wasn't there, so I was allowed in. I went in. I changed my clothes. I took a shower. I borrowed my mother's car. drove to the corner to get a pack of cigarettes. picked a young lady up hitchhiking, and we got married. I wouldn't get married that day, but we might have But in the state of Ohio, the male had to be 21 or have parental consent, and the female had to be 18 or have parental consent. When I married my first wife, she was 15 and I was 18. This was not a marriage that was made in heaven. We didn't know anything about being married. We didn't know anything about being in love. I can't tell you to this day if I love that woman. I can tell you this. I live in my brother's van in the driveway of my parents' home because I haven't been allowed in their house since I'm 14 years old. She lives wherever she can because there's stuff going on in her house she just doesn't want to go back to. And that brought us together. And we weren't alone anymore. And that was all we needed at that time, just not to be alone. And it was a simple marriage. I'd get up in the morning, I'd get drunk. She got up in the morning, she'd get drunk. And then we'd beat each other up. And we did that one day at a time for about seven years. But out of that seven years, I was always out of town. I had a lot of places to go. I was still traveling. I liked to travel. I just had different people deciding where I was going. I'd walk into a room like this, there'd be a guy sitting in the back of the room. He'd have a long black coat on. And every time he did this, I went somewhere. I was always in trouble. See, seemed like 12 years of my life, I really only did two things. I got ready to go to jail, and I got ready to come home from being in jail. I just had a real bad attitude. I was always in trouble. I got a report card at home from the third grade. You remember your report cards? Teacher would snitch on you on the back of it. You'd have to take it home, show it to your mama, make her sign and take it back. My third grade report card says this. It says, bad attitude. Timothy does not play well with others.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm eight years old, I haven't had a drink, and they know I have a problem. I just got arrested a lot. I wasn't a violent criminal. I was a stupid criminal. I got arrested for a lot of stupid stuff. I got arrested for stuff like verbal abuse of a police officer. It was in a little town called Parma, Ohio. I got arrested for obscene finger language to a police officer. And that was in this little town called Parma, Ohio. If y'all ever go to Ohio, I want to tell you about Parma. They got no sense of humor in Parma, Ohio. I was just always in trouble. I was a meeting one night, I was about two years sober, and I don't know about anybody else, I was two years sober, I was pretty much the smartest person in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's still a lot of long timers in Cleveland to tell you what a pain I was at two years sober, but you ever gone to a meeting, you've heard somebody say something, maybe you've heard them say it a hundred times, but all of a sudden it clicks and it makes sense, huh? There was a friend of mine talking that night. He was a long-timer. He's passed away. He's a good friend of mine. I just liked sitting next to him, you know, and just listening to him. He didn't have to be talking to me. I just liked being by him. And he had a past a lot like mine. It was only about 25 years earlier. And he was talking that night. And Vic stood up here and said, I've been arrested 63 times. I wasn't a good criminal. Man, I picked right up on that. I know I've been charged with 63 crimes. I wasn't a good criminal. People who do what I did got caught as often as I got caught weren't real good at what they were doing. Unless, of course, what you're doing is trying to get caught. That I was good at. I found something else out in that verbal abuse case of a police officer. I decided to represent myself in that case. So funny. But he laughs when I say that. <clears throat> I just knew I saw enough Perry Mason, judge for the defense. You know, I could go in there and I could handle this. And I went to that little municipal court and I called witnesses and I cross-examined witnesses. I gave my final arguments to the judge. Y'all know what I found out? I'm not a very good attorney either, man. <laughs> That's just the way my life was going. 1975, I stood in front of a judge in that old lakeside courthouse in downtown Cleveland, and he sentenced me to 20 to 40 years in the penitentiary. I felt pretty good that day. I felt better that day than I had in a long time. See, I knew something they didn't know. I can hear my wife and my mother in the back of the courtroom. They're crying. They don't think it's a good idea that I go away, and they certainly don't think I should go for that long. But I know something on that day. I know they can't send me anywhere. That's going to hurt me as much as I've already hurt me. But on that day, I knew it. And that judge didn't know that he couldn't punish me as much as I've already punished me. And I'm ready to go anywhere where I might have a better chance against myself. 1976, the laws changed in Ohio. Ohio. My sentence changed from a 20 to 40 to a 1 to 10. Three years later, they sent me home. When I came home, there wasn't anything left. All my stuff was gone. The stuff I had to have to fit into your world. The stuff I had to have to make me a person in this world was gone. My wife was gone. My car was gone. My motorcycle was gone. My jewelry was gone. My clothes were gone. Everything was gone. And I didn't do anything for the next three months but drink. I crawled into a bottle every day. I got as drunk as I could, blacked out as I could, passed out as I could, as many times that day as I needed to. I crawled into that bottle, but not once in my life have I ever crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from you. I've never crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from them. I got as drunk as I could as many times that day as I needed to. I hid in that bottle from me. You see, I knew what I was. I was an ex-con. I was an ex-husband. I was an ex-brother. And I was an ex-son. I failed at everything I ever tried to do in my life. And if I was drunk enough, I didn't have to look. Finally, a friend of mine came over. And he just wasn't going to let me stay there anymore. He said, you're coming with me. He almost physically takes me out of my house. You're out of jail. You're not going to drink yourself to death in that chair. You're coming with me. It's time to start living again. And he took me downtown to the flats of Cleveland. We had a little place down there where people go and get drunk. And that's what we did. We went down to the flats and we walked into a little bar called the Pirate's Cove. My cousin's band was playing that night. They're playing a Marshall Tucker song. I'm drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. I'm about half in the bag, and this pretty little girl walked past me, and she smiled at me. You know I smiled right back. That was her. That was my future (laughs) (laughs) ex-wife. Who shall heretofore be known as the plaintiff. That's who that was. (laughs) I want to tell you about my second wife. She came into my home and she had some stuff with her. She had some stuff I think I must have had at one time in my life. I just didn't know where it went. But I'm sure I must have had it. She brought things with her like honesty. She brought love. She brought unselfishness. And she brought purity. These are the things she had when she came into my house. Four years later, she left. She ran for her life. She had none of those things left. Alcoholism. Stripped. Every decent thing that woman had. I'm not the only one I hurt when I pick up a drink. I know that today. I touch a lot of lives. I tried for a couple years. (coughs) I had a fair job. I had a parole officer didn't bother me too much. I was moving up in the company. I was trying to do everything right for two years. I never missed a day. I never called in sick. I was never late. I worked any overtime. They offered me. For two years I worked. Are you listening to me? I worked two years. I'm sitting in my living room one night, drunk, after two years, surveying my dynasty. And you know, After doing the right thing for two years, you know I don't have a house on the lake. I don't have two Lincolns in the driveway. I'm not wearing the right kind of clothes, don't belong to the right kind of clubs, and I'm certainly not running around with the right kind of people. And I came to a conclusion that night. I made this decision sitting on my couch drunk, that those things were for other people. And no matter how hard I worked, Or how good I was. I was just never supposed to have those things. And I woke up the next morning, called my boss, and quit my job. The end of my drinking's not too exciting. I got up, I got drunk. If I got up again, I got drunk again. That's what I did, a day at a time. My wife lasted for almost two years. And then she had to go. She just couldn't take anymore. This is my life at 30 years old. You know those family gatherings we have? Maybe it's Mother's Day, Thanksgiving or Christmas. We'll sit and we'll meet at a central place with our families. We'll sit at a table and we'll hold hands and say grace. We'll share a meal with each other. And then we'll share with each other what's going on in our lives. It's just the way it works at my house. I pull into the driveway and I blow the horn. When they hear the horn inside, my little brother walks out of the back door. He has a paper plate in his hand and it's wrapped in tinfoil. I'm allowed to sit in the driveway of my parents' home in my car and eat my holiday meal. I can't sit at their table and have a real knife and fork. I can't hold their hands and say grace. They certainly don't want to share with me anything that's going on in my life at that time. But I don't want you to think, not even for one minute, that they stopped loving me. Not even this much did their love diminish for me at that time in my life. They just finally realized that every time they reached down and stopped me from hitting my bottom, they were hurting me. Every time they allowed me not to be responsible for my own actions, that they were putting another nail in my coffin. They let me go. That's how much my parents love. They let me go. I don't have any children. So I can only imagine how much love that must take. June 23rd, 1982, I woke up at that bottom I told you about. And I didn't know what to do. When I didn't know what to do, I always did the same thing in my life. I made a phone call. I don't know if I made that phone call a hundred times, a thousand times, or ten thousand times, but it was always the same phone call, and it was always to the same person. It was, Mom, help. My mom came. She'd come to me. I couldn't go to her. She walked into my house. I'm kneeling on the living room floor. I'm shaking apart. I'm crying uncontrollably. I have hepatitis, and I weigh 112 pounds. And the first words out of my mother's mouth was this. I'll kill her for doing this to you. Alcoholism. This is a family disease. Blaming others is a big part of this disease, and my mother has it too. We made some phone calls, and I found myself in an emergency room. (coughs) excuse me I got a doctor playing with my liver I'm vibrating on the table he says son you got an alcohol problem I said no sir not me I'm not going to be no alcoholic I told y'all before I wasn't going to be an alcoholic we arguing back and forth he gives me a shot of thiamine and I said I just don't want to be an alcoholic he said I don't care what you want to be or don't want to be If you don't quit drinking, you're going to die. And I heard him say that. They sent me to the east side of Cleveland. I spent the next ten days in a psych ward. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. It almost sounded like step one, didn't it? Almost. I spent three days in restraints. Nothing big. I could have got out of them if I wanted to. I think they were just scared I might vibrate myself out of the bed or something. <laughs> I got a psychiatrist in my psych ward. I got the happiest psychiatrist on earth in my psych ward, and he comes to visit me every morning about six or seven o'clock in the morning. He comes in, happy, Jim. How are you doing? Good to see you. Isn't it a wonderful day, huh? I don't know about the rest of y'all. Six o'clock in the morning. Tied to a bed. In a psych ward on the east side of Cleveland. I'm not real spiritual. I told him what I thought. And he just did what psychiatrists do. Y'all know what they do, right? They write in their charts. They nod their heads. That's what they do. Then they make you take that test. Did you ever take that test? That MMPI test? Got 601 questions on it, man. I'd like to have a nickel for every time they made me take an MMPI test. Every time I went somewhere, every jail, every prison, every workhouse, I'd have to take an MMPI test. It's only one question on that test I can't answer. Just one. My favorite question on the whole test. Do you urinate more than most people?
1: I don't know. Now
0: I'm the one supposed to be crazy, right? And the third day that psychiatrist came into my room he took the straps off he put the chart in a windowsill and I don't ever want to forget it he sat on the edge of my bed and said this he said I can't make your wife come home Jim. I don't have a job to give you I'm not going to make a house payment for you but if you never want to take another drink as long as you live I can tell you how to do that one day at a time You see, that psychiatrist was a recovering member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know God wants me here. And he sat on my bed and he shared a little bit of his story with me. And then I shared a little bit of my story with him. And now, all of a sudden, it was no longer I'm powerless over alcohol that my life had become unmanageable. All of a sudden, it became we. 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 Admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable. And that's step one. And I know today that without the we, I don't have a chance. Seven days later, he sent me home. He gave me my prescription when I left. It's the most valuable thing anybody's ever given me to this day. He gave me a meeting schedule to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, when you get out of here, I want you to do two things. You go to a meeting and you get a sponsor. And I got home and I didn't know what to do. Y'all know what I do when I don't know what to do. I called my mama. I said, Mom, I got to go to an AA meeting. She said, that's all right, I'll come get you. Mom knows all about AA. She went to meetings in the 40s and the 50s with my daddy. There's been a big book in my house as long as I can remember. My mom still got a resentment about AA. Back then, they had meetings in the house. It was okay for her to make the hot dogs and the coffee, but then when the meeting started, made her go sit in the bedroom. (laughs) She took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was July 4th, and it was 1982. She dropped me on your doorstep. She told me this, and I'm going to share her advice with you. She said, "I'm not coming back to get you. You go in there. You go to the front room. You front of the room. You go to the table up front, and you tell the people up there you're new. You don't have a car. You don't have a driver's license. You need a ride home. And you stay away from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous." <laughs> And I paid attention to just about half my mama's advice. But I got sponsored that night. He gave me stuff to do that night. His wife was chairing that night. She handed me the tradition to ask me if I'd read. I backed up. So I don't think so, honey. You know, they just took the straps off me. You might want to find somebody else to do that. He said, no, nah, here's your first lesson in A.H., huh? You never say no to alcoholics and animals. No matter what the request is, the answer is yes. That's all you need to know. Then he gave me some simple things to do. Say if you have a cup, you throw it away. If you sat in a chair, you put it away. I want you to read one page of the big book every day. Don't turn that page until tomorrow. Read that page as many times that day as you want to or think you need to, but do not. Turn that page until tomorrow. And just maybe, in 164 days, you might know something about the big book of alcoholics now. He said, if you're not praying, this is how you're going to start. You're going to take three words your mother taught you when you were a little boy. You're going to get up in the morning and kneel down, and you're going to say, please. You're going to get up and go about your day, and at the end of that day, you're going to kneel back down, and you're going to say, thank you. Please. And thank you. You know, my mother taught me those words when I was a little boy. You know what she called them? Magic words. What's the magic word, Timmy? That's what she used to say. I had no idea how much magic those words held till I came here to you. My sponsor asked me that question. Now, I'm a firm believer that we say stuff to new people that we got no business saying. He said, he asked that question. Y'all heard it. Do you want what I have, he said. (laughs) Man, I don't know. What do you got? (laughs) Do I want what you have? Now, my sponsor, he drove a brand-new Tornado, had a Rolex watch, had a stewardess wife with the prettiest green eyes I ever saw in my life. Do I want what you have? (laughs) Yeah. What page is that on, pal? (laughs) I had no idea what he was trying to give me. I had to come to believe by watching him that my life could change. And I found out that the only way I'd ever know what he wanted me to have, the first time I knew was when I gave it to somebody else. That's when you know. And that's when you know you want it. I knelt down with my sponsor and said a third step prayer, and I wasn't crazy about that. I just wasn't crazy about God's will or anything going on with God at that time in my life and wasn't sure that what he had in mind for me was going to work. And then what if it did, huh? And I just argued with my sponsor. He finally gave me something to explain the third step to me gave me a penny. You got a penny? I always have a penny. If you've got a penny, you can understand the third step, too. Back of the penny, it says one cent. Got the Lincoln Memorial on the back of it. Do you know what happens as soon as you turn it over? On the front of that penny, it says, In God, we trust. That's the third step. In God, we trust. That step's not about my will. It's about God's will. Or it's not about God's will. It's about my will. What am I willing to do? Am I willing to trust God today? I can tell you I am. Once I can do that, there's another word at the bottom of that pen. That word's liberty. That's the freedom I can have if I can trust God a day at a time. You know I had to start on that four step, but y'all know that's not one you want to rush right into, right? Oh no, you gotta really take your time with that fourth step. You gotta read all them books, man. If we ain't got nothing in Alcoholics Anonymous, we got books, don't we? <laughs> now we got blue books, we got little blue books, we got blue and blue books, we got little red books, little black books, little green books, we got books, and you gotta read all them books, because if you don't read all them books, talk to every old timer in the world, you're gonna mess the fourth step up. There's only one way to do the four-step wrong. Don't do it. That's the only way to do it wrong. I read all them books. I talked to every old-timer in Cleveland. I'm sober 22 years, and I still don't know what Mr. Jones' problem is. (laughs) I'm sitting home one day, the phone rings. It's my sponsor. He said, hey, how's that four-step coming? I said, oh, it's coming right along. And he gave me something. He gave me a little information. Don't want to give your new man too much information. He said, it'll get done in God's time. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking, too, about that four-step. <laughs> Not on the phone, up. No. Five minutes later, the phone rang. And it's my sponsor again. I said, Tim, how's that fourth step coming? <laughs> but I got something now, right? I gave it right back to him. I said, it's going to get done in God's time. And he said, that's a good thing, because God's time is tomorrow morning at nine o'clock.
1: <laughs>
0: I made an appointment for you to do your fifth step. That's just the kind of guy my sponsor is. He sits behind you at meetings. they say, we need coffee help this month. He'll raise my hand. <laughs> Tim will do it. Tim still does it. I'm an active member of the West Clifton Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet in Lakewood, Ohio, 9 o'clock on Friday night. And when I'm there, I have one of the best jobs you can have. I had a home group. If I'm in town, if you can get it at your home group, try. I have one of the most important jobs there is to have. I turn the lights out. I'm the last car in the parking lot every Friday night. And I say goodbye to the people that came to my home group. Thank them for coming and ask them to come again. If you can get that job at your home group, get it. That's a good job. I did a fourth step and I did a fifth step. And then I had to become entirely ready, but I didn't. I just couldn't. Now I knew what was wrong, knew why it was wrong, but I didn't take the next step. It doesn't say stop in the book. The book are the directions to a new way of life, it doesn't say stop in there anywhere, but I stopped and my life got bad. I have a pair of pink socks at home. I never wanted a pair of pink socks. I never bought a pair of pink socks. No one else ever bought me a pair of pink socks, but I have a pair of pink socks at home. I used to have a pair of white socks and a brand new red t-shirt. Some of y'all done this, huh? I washed that red T-shirt, didn't want to wash it alone, so I got the rest of the laundry. Threw it all in there, dried it all up. You know what I got. Pink socks. So I'm folding my T-shirt, I got a mild resentment. And I noticed something. There's a tag on the back of your T-shirt. I don't know if y'all ever noticed it before. Apparently I hadn't. It's got writing on it. Do you know what it says? It says, washing instructions.
1: Wash separately. Wash
0: separately. I never took time to read the directions. If you never take time to read the directions to A New Way of Life laid out in that big book, you can never hope to have what it promises you. But do you know what happens? Even if you read the directions and you don't follow them, you get pink socks, man. <laughs> I became entirely ready and I had to humbly ask a power greater than myself for help because I didn't know where to go next. I couldn't do it alone. I needed the help and I humbly asked God for help. And God taught me to forgive. I looked at my list in the eighth and I went over with my sponsor and I told him, well this guy, that guy, you know, he ripped me off too, so that's a push, right? We're good. We don't, we can just, you know, we can clear most of this sheet up because these guys hurt me too. He said, no, that isn't how it works, Tim. You have to learn to forgive everybody. And not until you can forgive everybody do you have the right to ask anybody else for forgiveness. I had to learn to forgive. Then I went out and I made direct amends to the people I've wronged. And you know, before I was halfway through, just like that book says, those promises started coming true in my life. I got that Lincoln parked in the driveway today. I keep it disguised as a Ford, though. You know that... (laughs) That's just so no one will steal it. Maybe you'll see it sometime. If you come to Cleveland, you might see it. You might think, man, that ain't no Lincoln. But remember this. There's only one person here today, only one, that's looking out of your eyes. And that's the only person that's ever going to be responsible for what you see. You can see good, or you can see bad. But remember, you're the one looking. You see, when I go home, I'm going to get inside my car. Alcoholics Anonymous is an inside job. I spent my whole life thinking if I could make the outside look good enough, the inside would feel better. And it doesn't work that way. I get inside my car. And I don't see Ford. I see Lincoln. Town car. 2004. It's triple black with a moonroof. Got a Bose CD system in it with a 12-disc changer. And I hit that power window. (laughs) And I drive to work to the job I didn't used to have when I was drinking. And I see my friends. You know those friends I didn't used to have when I was drinking? I have a good life today. I don't know who has your message. Do you? Are you waiting for maybe somebody with 50 years to have the message? Or are you listening? Might be the guy that's going to get sober in 50 minutes. He might be the one God sent today. I got a message on the first step about 11, 12 years ago. So I don't know who has my message. I just know... That if somebody's talking and I can hear them, God wants me to listen. I was invited to speak in Indiana. My wife couldn't go with me that weekend. So I took a new guy with me. I didn't want to take my car because I didn't think my car would make it to Indiana. So I took my wife's car. And she was driving a Honda Civic then. And you know in a Honda Civic, what do you get in a Honda Civic? Three, 400 miles to a gallon, right? Oh, you can drive a Honda Civic from now on. Never run out of gas in a Honda Civic. So I threw my new guy in the Honda Civic, and we headed for Valparaiso, Indiana. Well underneath the sign and said my exit was about six, seven exits away. And I looked down, and the gas gauge said empty. And I thought, well, yeah, empty like in a real car, empty, you know. But Honda Civic empty you've got to have a 100 miles left there's only 60 left in Indiana I'm going to be fine I never gave it another thought until we went underneath the sign and said my exit was two miles I ran out of gas you got a Honda Civic and it says empty they're dead serious about that
1: that's, that's
0: exactly what they mean I coasted for another mile, and I pulled over to the side of the road. Here I am on the side of the road in the middle of Indiana, out of gas, got a new guy sitting next to me. You know, I don't even want to turn and look at him. I just spent the better part of about four hours telling him all about responsibility and stuff like that. But I couldn't sit in Indiana the rest of my life. I had to do something. So I turned and I looked at him. And he just grinned. <laughs> You've seen it, that new guy grinned. They'll wait a long time for you to do something wrong just so they can point it out. <laughs> he just grinned and he looked at me and he said, we're powerless, ain't we? <laughs> Yeah, you bet we are. And
1: what
0: do you think we ought to do about that? He said, "I think we better admit it."
1: <laughs>
0: I see. Yeah, because I can sit here the rest of my life, and go.
1: Rum, rum, rum.
0: <laughs> if I never admit there's a problem, I'm never going to get anywhere. I don't know who has your message today. To you, someone's talking. Listen. I live my life this way today. I take one word out of the last three steps. Continued, improved, and practice. Now each one of those words is an action word. You gotta do something if you want something. My book says half measures avail me nothing. Then say half measures avail me half. It says nothing, and I don't know about any of you, I've had more nothing in my life than I want. I don't want any more nothing. I want everything my God wants me to have, and you know I don't even know what that is, but I want it. There's a difference in my life today, and I want to share that with you. I go to the prisons and I talk to the guys in the penitentiaries. I don't much care for penitentiaries, never did. And now in Ohio, I don't know how it is anywhere else to get into the penitentiary, you've got to fill out an application, for Christ's sake. They never asked me for an application yeah. to get into the penitentiary before. But I was reminded of something. Years ago, I was in one of our our institutions in Ohio, and a guy asked me if he could call me. I said, sure you can. I forgot that when you're in the penitentiary, you've got to call (laughs) collect. I'll accept a collect phone call today. I'm going to tell you why. October 10th, 1989, I walked into a meeting. There was a young lady speaking that night. And I don't know what your sponsor told you, but I'd like to have a nickel for every time my sponsor said this to me. He said, If you hear something you like at a meeting, take it home. (laughs) And on October 16th, 1993... I married that woman. Her name's Mary. I married a young lady in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I married a very intelligent woman in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very educated woman. A lot of her friends didn't think she's so smart when she said she'd marry me. But it's true. My wife is very intelligent and she's very educated. My wife got more letters after her name unbelievable. she has been in school as long as you can be in school. She's still in school. I and mean, she's got a BA. She's got an MA. She's got an MACT. She was ABD. Now she's got a PhD. And then finally, she always got what I wanted her to have, and that's the J-O-B. <laughs> My wife is very educated and one of my new guys asked me this once. he said doesn't that intimidate you that your wife is so educated that your wife is so intelligent doesn't that intimidate you and i just stopped and think about that for a minute because never had before you know and i thought no <laughs> no it doesn't intimidate me it makes me proud as hell i'm proud as hell of my wife's accomplishments I can't be intimidated because 16 years ago, my wife walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and she had no letters after her name. But the women of her home group, a god of her understanding, and a big blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous, told her that once she came in here, she could be anything she wanted to be if she was willing to do the work. And that's how it happened. I'd have to be intimidated by God and Alcoholics Anonymous to be intimidated by my wife's accomplishments. And I proved how proud I am of my wife. I got a new license plates. You know those vanity plates? Y'all got those in Pennsylvania? God, I hate those things. But I got some. <clears throat> you know what my license plates say? They say, Ph.D., G.E.D. I got letters after my name too. October 16th, 1993, we had an AA wedding. It started with the Serenity Prayer, it ended with the Lord's Prayer. Had a reading from the 12 and 12 in between. We had a clam bake. An Elvis impersonator. <laughs> now, when that boy asked me if he could call me from the penitentiary and he called me collected, it reminded me of one thing. It reminded me that in 1975, they walked me into that bullpen at that old reformatory in Ohio. They walked me up to the phone and they said, Tim, you can call anywhere in the world. You can call anybody you want. And you can talk for this long. But you have to call collect. And I stood there and I dialed. And I dialed some more. And I dialed until I was out of time. You know I couldn't find one person. Not one person on this earth. That would accept to collect phone call from me at that time in my life. Not one. We invited 300 people to that wedding. You know how many came? About three hundred and forty. <laughs> you see, that's the difference. That's the difference from then to now. It's the difference in my life. And there's a difference in me. <clears throat> About five, six years ago, my stepfather got sick. And and I had to become his caregiver. I had to take care of my stepfather. And there's two people in this world never hated each other more than me and him. And I was allowed back in the house. Now, the only reason I was allowed back in the house is because he got Alzheimer's. And he forgot what I was, he was mad at me about, I guess. <laughs> but it became my responsibility to take care of him. And that's what I did. I took care of him and my mother. And I made sure they were all right. And then after a couple of years, it was just no more helping him. I couldn't anymore. He was taking doors off the hinges and in, and crawling out windows. And the police kept bringing him home. And it was just a sad thing. Alzheimer's is a sad, sad disease. So we had to find a nursing home for him. And we found one in Ohio, the Veterans Home in Sandusky, and they have three Alzheimer floors. And it's the most wonderful place I've ever seen. They really took care of him good. And we're about 65, 70 miles from Sandusky where we live. And every weekend I take my mom out to visit. Mom's 86 now. And today I take care of my mother. That's part of my life today. I look after my mother. Now, she still lives at home. She gets around okay. In the last three or four years, she's had three strokes. She broke her hip. But she's doing okay. She seems happy most of the time, and she's still in her house, and that's what she wants. And I have a woman that looks in on her during the day that takes care of her during the day. And after work, that's where I go. I go to my mom's, and I make her dinner. I get her pills out, and I walk her dog, and make sure the dog's all right and pay the bills, and I just do what she needs me to do, whatever it is. I just take care of my mom today. And on the weekends, I get up early and I do the grocery shopping and I go over to her house and make her three meals and get her all set up. That's what I do on weekends when I'm in town. You know what I like to do on weekends? I like to play golf. That's what I like to do. I play golf. I like to play golf. I didn't couldn't play last year too much. Last year, I went through interferon treatment for hepatitis C. And if you've done that, it's not a lot of fun, and I lost a lot of weight, and I was pretty sick. But we made it through, and uh, we didn't quite make it through yet, but we made it through that regime. There might be another one, but we'll deal with that a day at a time when it happens. So I wasn't real well, so I couldn't play much golf last year, but that's what I like to do. I have friends that still play. They play on Saturday and Sunday mornings, and they'll call me. And they'll say, you want to play? We have an opening in the foursome. Are you in town? And I'll say, yeah, I'm in town, but I'll be with my mom in the morning. I could play in the afternoon maybe, but I can't play in the morning. I'll be with my mom. But they still call, and that's nice. And one of them asked me this one day. He said, do you have to be with your mom? I said, no, I don't. I get to be with my mom. I get to be there. I don't have to be there. That's the difference today in me. And I don't go to my mom's cause I'm a great cook. My mom doesn't want me over there cause I'm a good housekeeper. I'm no, I have no medical expertise at all. I've written some prescriptions in my time, but <laughs> But I'm no doctor. There's one real big reason I go to my mom. You might think it's because I was in prison three years and she never missed a visit. It's not the biggest reason. You know what the biggest reason is I go to my mom? Because I've known a loneliness such as few men know. And loneliness is a big part of being old. The elderly suffer from loneliness. There's somebody in your life and every once in a while it crosses your mind and you think, you know, I should go see them. Quit thinking about it and go. It's awful hard to make amends at the funeral home. Just take the time. You'll be glad you did. I'm going to leave you with something my friend tells me every time I see him. Walter doesn't talk real good anymore. He's had a few strokes and he, he doesn't get around much. But every time I see him, Walter used to tell me this. He said, Tim, you remember this. What you do between the Serenity Prayer and the Lord's Prayer isn't real important. What's really important is what you're doing between the Lord's Prayer and the Serenity Prayer. Thank you very, very much.